Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another stupendous, fantastic, and awesome episode of Amazing Greatness here on YouTube and on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play for those who want to hear audio only. Uh, this week, okay, this is a week we're going to do a little something a little different, but I think you guys are going to see how this relates to everything else that is that I, my channel goes into, and that is we're going to interview a person who is actually a... Uh, uh, in the reserves now, but has been an active duty soldier since 1994. Uh, he's a friend of mine. His name is Gary Lulu. Now, do I have that pronunciation right? Absolutely. You got it. Excellent. Okay, good. And Gary's been a long-term uh, watcher and follower of my channel and great supporter and uh, somebody that I've actually wanted to do this interview with for quite a while. I've had so many questions about things. And I like to talk to people who have been in it, who have had direct experience with stuff as often as I can. You know, sometimes I have a hard time getting folks on my show who are rather prestigious because I'm still a small show, but I'm working on it. And, uh, but you know, the people who are on the ground sometimes have the most amazing observations and details and ability to talk about what's going on. And that is the case here. So Gary, welcome to my show. Hey, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. And now, you, this is not your first roadie in terms of showing up on the public airwaves. You're on radio as well. Yeah, I was. I was working for 92.5 KVPI, and uh, that's the, the time we did an interview uh, over the air that one time. And by the way, the, the people loved it. And, oh, good. Um, and I, did, I spent a couple years into that uh, since I've gotten into the reserves, but I have since moved into Journalism. Uh, I worked as a as a staff writer and reporter for the local newspaper here in uh, in town. So awesome, man! Awesome, yeah. cool. Well, let's get into it. I've had, um, you know, I, I've I've got so many questions and things I want to ask you. That first off, though, let's give the folks out there some idea of who you are, where you've been, because okay. you've got two pages of resume here of, yeah. of uh, soldier experience. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to just read the whole thing beginning to end, but you joined in 94. Yeah, that's and right. And go ahead and give a summary version of like where you've been and what you've done. Okay. Well, in uh, 1994, um, I was, I had finished school a year and a half ago, two years ago, high school. And um, I was just looking for a new avenue in life. So um, I actually walked into the recruiter's office wanting to join the Marine Corps, but they were busy. They didn't have time to talk to me. And I didn't know the difference at the time. So as I walked out of the office, the army guys stopped me and said, hey, man, where are you going? And I said, well, uh, you guys are too busy to see me. Um, I, I kind of wanted to, to sign up, you know, or see what's going on. You know, what kind of deal can you guys give me? And he said, oh, man, well, come on in our office and we'll square you away. And I'll bet they, he did. <laughs> they popped a VCR tape of some guys jumping out of airplanes and they gave me the brochure and they said, we'll be back with you in a minute. And I was like, OK, man, and I was sold. And uh, I was ready to sign up. And they said, and you being a great guy, we'll even give you a $1,000 bonus. What? I was like, what? Man? I'm 18 years old. This is, this is it. So, Big yeah. money. Big money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, All right. And yeah, and where'd you go? Yeah. So I went to Fort Benning, Georgia for as a uh, recruit, as a basic training. Finished my training there. And then I went to Fort Hood, Texas. And um, I, was, I was in an infantry unit, which is like the ground pounders. 
and the actual definition according to regulation as to what we do is to find, fix, close with, and destroy the enemy in close personal combat with using the judicious application of controlled violence. <laughs> okay, nice, nice definition <laughs> that's, that's, there. Yeah, that's our technical definition for what exactly what goes on the resume. Yeah. Let yeah, me we, actually, we, let, let me interrupt for just a second because yeah, I realized I forgot to do something and that is that we need to be super, super clear about something on my show uh -huh. here today. Yeah. And that is that Gary is not here in any way, shape or form as a representative of or spokesperson for any of the armed services. Everything uh -huh. we are going to talk uh -huh. about today is 100% his experience and opinion and is in no way, shape or form to be interpreted by anybody as policy statements or or public relations statements on the part of the armed forces themselves so absolutely. just had to throw that it. disclaimer out there absolutely i appreciate that but uh yeah once i got to fort hood texas i was a a standard infantryman there and i liked the job it grew on me um it gave you a sense of accomplishment i made a little rank not much i wasn't in charge of anything but i made a, a couple stripes and then my re-enlistment time came up and i re-enlisted for the big time i wanted to be a paratrooper I wanted to jump out of planes. I really wanted to do that stuff. I was motivated. I was young, my early 20s. I re-enlisted, got to airborne school, and got assigned to the 101st Airborne at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And that's the, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but those are the Screaming Eagles. Those guys, uh, they did a movie about that back in 2000, uh, the Band of Brothers uh, miniseries that Tom Hanks produced. And uh, that's the unit. That's, that's the famed 101st Airborne. And it was a privilege to serve there. But a uh, little did I know within that year of getting there, the world would change. I mean, September 11th happened. And after that, uh, any illusions I had of this just being a game were out the window. It got real, you know. And, yeah, uh, I'll bet shit got real, real fast yeah. uh, when yeah. those towers went down. Now, oh, yeah. you were assigned to uh, Afghanistan? Yeah. Uh, my first deployment, right after the uh, towers fell, um, our, the whole post was locked down. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, they took out bomb sniffing dogs to the front gate. They cut off all the pay phones, the cell phone signals were uh, disrupted. I mean, it, it was crazy. We were locked down on post. We couldn't go home and see our families, nothing, because it was all new and it was happening by the moment. And um, so um, after those, after that, that tension kind of decreased a little bit, then the, the mission started coming down. The, uh, the orders started coming down from Washington, D.C. to our uh, chain of command. And they started coming up with a um, with a plan for us and how we were going to go and meet our enemies on the battlefield. And Afghanistan, if you remember right, at the end of 2001, all the way in 2002, that was the area of engagement. So um, we ramped up. We uh, flew to Uzbekistan. We staged there because that was an old Soviet republic at one time. It's an independent country now. And then there was a base there. We staged there for a little while until we got the, uh, the, the, the order to actually go and bum rush, you know, into Afghanistan. We were with the Marine Corps on one side. They had us on the other. We were all in helicopters as we invaded the country. Basically, I'm oversimplifying it, but they took a lesson with the Kabul. And we took a right and went down to Kandahar and secured that city there. Um, and we stayed there for about a year. And um, uh, it, a major engagement during that year time was called Operation Anaconda. That was the first major land engagement. Um, after the bombing of Tora Bora at the end of 2001, the remnants of Al-Qaeda scattered into the mountains. And um, right around March 2002, they started to coalesce again. What was left started to collect up in this village 
in, uh, it, the village's name is Sirkan Kiel. It's in the Gardez region of Afghanistan. They started coalescing around there. The intelligence confirmed that that's where they were. There were about 300 of them. And then they sent us into the fight to extinguish what was the supposedly the, the last of the uh, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But that didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, no, we've since learned, I believe, yeah. timing wise, that at that same time or around that time, um, Osama bin Laden was uh, was hiding out in Pakistan. Yeah. Well, actually, he just we can hear him making the escape. Uh, I mean, uh, his communication with his guys during that particular engagement, Operation Anaconda, it was a major engagement supposed to last three days, turned into 11. Um, intelligence had the number of enemy personnel all wrong. It went from 300 to 1300. So our force was wholly inadequate. They, uh, our Afghani allies tipped off the Al-Qaeda as to our coming in at what time. Our LZ, our landing zones were compromised. There was a big fight and it, it, it you know, it, it was a, excuse the pun, but a come to Jesus meeting with yourself, so to speak. You know, it was a, it was a serious engagement. And, um, and, and the, the Afghani allies were supposed to block them, the remnants of Al-Qaeda from getting into Pakistan, but they didn't do that. They let them right. walk right into Pakistan. And uh, you can hear them on the, on the two-way radios talking to one another, and they went straight through the, that defensive line that Afghanis were supposed to set up. And uh, Bin Laden went into hiding for about another 10 years. That's right. And, uh, Afghanistan, yeah. and Afghanistan turned into something that, uh, I mean, I, I guess our uh, political leadership at the time had no anticipation of it turning into. You know what I mean? It turned into, we were supposed to be in there and gone, destroy them in a couple of weeks and we're out of there. And that didn't happen. We're still there. Exactly. And that that really does highlight the uh, and I'm not going to try to be all ultra, you know, critical here of no, yeah, yeah. our government, you know, hindsight is always 2020 and we can see things backwards that we could never see moving forwards. And, and so I don't want to, you know, armchair quarterback anything here, but I do yeah. want to point out that uh, lack of adequate intelligence has been our bugbear in a number of these countries over there. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, perfect example, that map I have on the wall right there. That is a Russian map. That's the map I had to use in Afghanistan because the CIA considered it such a crappy place before 2001. It was, uh, they didn't map it. They didn't digitize it. And so we had no maps going into the fight. So what we had to do was take these plastic sheets of paper called an overlay, write the English translations on it, tape it over that map. And that's what we used in the fight, trying to navigating through the mountains at 10,000 feet elevation. And I guess did anybody at the time? I'm just I, I'm just going to fire questions at you as they occur yeah, to sure. me. Did anybody at the time think to themselves, you know, Russia just got their asses handed to them year yeah. after year after year in this exact same place? And say what you will about Russia, they certainly don't have any shortage of people and machinery to throw at things. Yeah. <laughs> did anybody think to themselves, you know, maybe we might want to reconsider what we're doing here? Obviously, not your call as a soldier on the ground, but was there even talk about I, that? I think the chain of command had hesitations about committing large scale ground forces initially until it was the situation was such that it was inescapable. They had to send some ground forces in there because, I mean, airplanes can only do so much. Uh, helicopters can only do so much. Indirect fire, which is like artillery, can only do so much. You have to put troops on the ground to subdue the population, take over a high value target whatever, you've got to have troops on the ground. And I think they put it off as much as they could until it was undeniable that they had to do something. 
And uh, I think those lessons from what the Russians learned were incorporated. But then again, I mean, they're the Russians. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. you know um, the, uh, the civilian population, the Afghan civilian population thought we were Russians until, I mean, like one of my best friends, he's a black guy. And they looked at him and they're like, wait, you're not Russian. Like, no, we're, we're not. We're Americans. You know, they they don't know the difference, you know? Well, of course. How would they? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, one warlord can have a, a fight on one side of the mountain and on the other side, the, the, the next tribe or whatever can know nothing of what's going on at all. They right. Very, very tribal. 19th century technology type of uh, basis, you know? Yeah, exactly. And yet it's interesting how effective those old school communication techniques and tribal oh, systems yeah. can be against a modern uh you know technologically advanced oh, yeah. uh army exactly and we had to uh almost dumb down our ability to fight the enemy you know because i mean all that all those gizmos don't do you any good if you're going up a guy who's going to throw rocks at you till you die you know what i mean so you got to change the way you fight yeah exactly and, and that's so the thing about the american army versus the russian army we have an ability to adapt Everybody in the chain of command down to the private knows the plan. In a Russian army, doesn't happen. Privates, enlisted people, they don't get the plan. It's the officer that has the plan. And if he gets shot, oh, well, the mission failed. They'll just right. send a whole other unit in there. Right. Yeah. Different, different culture, different way of thinking about yep. how to implement or exactly. utilize resources. Uh, okay, fair enough. So, so you're on the ground there. Then again, and let's get back to the broad strokes. How long were yeah. you there? And then what happened after? Okay, that? I redeployed around uh, September of 2000, September, October 2001, back to the States, or 2002, I'm sorry, back to the States. So that put me a year in Afghanistan. I got back to the States. We had our little block leave for like 35, 45 days, if I, I remember right. And um, halfway through my leave, it was canceled. I got ordered to go back to base. I'm like, what, what now, you know? And, I, and at this point, I, I'm totally outside of the news cycle, you know, for a whole year in 2001, 2002. It's not like now where the news constantly hits your phone and you're constantly inundated with information. It wasn't like that then. I, I had no idea that Iraq was turning into something. And when we got back from leave, when we got called back into leave, we got the briefing that, look, we're about to redeploy back to Kuwait because Saddam Hussein's acting up and we might have to go in there. And we're like, what? Like, really? Don't you know we've got guys in Afghanistan right now? And we're like, yeah. But, you know, that's where the next fight is. And I think that's, that contributed to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban having a resurgence because we took our attention off of Afghanistan. And the, the, the because, you know, you've got to have a full spectrum mission whenever you go to war nowadays. You've got to not only defeat the enemy, but you've got to provide infrastructure. You've got to provide guidance and leadership. You got to, you know, to the civilian population, you got to, you know, you got to provide those things that are after war or other than war to make sure the population doesn't revert back to what it was before you got there. So they took their eye off of that. And that's exactly what happened. They, 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 um, they fell back into that, uh, that, that whole cycle of, of constant uh, infighting and warlords fighting one another and all that stuff. So um, we, uh, we got back to Kuwait. We redeployed from the States back to Kuwait. And then in March of 2003, we invaded Iraq. And, All right. Uh, and you were, you were boots on the ground for that as well. Yep. Yep. Um, Damn. We, uh, the minute um, Saddam Hussein didn't comply with the, uh, with the, uh, in, the, the instructions, the UN in, in, instructions to have his uh, uh, country inspected, 
the minute the last no was uttered, we got the word to invade and we were right there on the line. We were staged in Kuwait, ready just to bum rush across the line the minute we got the word and that's what happened. And we pushed north. We went all the way up to, my unit went all the way up to Syria. We, we started in Kuwait and we went all the way up through the whole country, hopping along, riding in helicopters, securing certain areas along the way until we got up to um, Syria and the, and what they call it the Sinjar province. So, and uh, wow. I, I stayed there a year and then uh, came back home. We got a, a, a couple of years later, I got an assignment to Fort Benning to be an instructor. And I, I did that only to uh, get into the reserves after that in 2007, 2008. And then, okay. Um, yeah. And you've been so, reserve, active reserve since then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, once I got into the reserves, um, I put my bags down at my new unit and they said, uh, well, get ready. You're going back to Iraq. <laughs> so I went back to Iraq for a whole nother year in 2010. And, uh, that was a, that was a, uh, you could tell the political climate was changing then in 2010. Um, Obama had got elected in 08. So in 2010, he's thinking about winding it down. I mean, the speeches are coming out about closing Iraq, closing shop. And, um, so the dignitaries were coming in to ensure that, you know, um, like David Petraeus, he was working for the CIA then. We pulled security for that guy, like the perimeter security for the, whenever he would come in and do inspections. And Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, she had come through, um, and the mission was changing then. We were shutting down Iraq. Even though Afghanistan's still going, we're shutting down Iraq, because that was one of Obama's promises at the time, to get out of Iraq. So we actually shut the gate on that place. So, I mean, looking at it in full spectrum, I invaded in 03, and then I was in a unit that, uh, by coincidence, shut it down, you know, as we were leaving. Right. Yeah, you've been you've you've been in some interesting places by pure yeah. coincidence, you know. Yep, actually a victim of circumstance. But I can say this that that what was accomplished in Iraq was absolutely nothing. I mean, it was the same hellhole it was before we left. I mean, that's my opinion. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not an intelligence analyst, but just just from what I witnessed. And, and, and I want to ask you about that. I want to, uh, let's go ahead and finish your, your tour here, your, your career, and then we'll go back yeah. and take a look at this, because I have questions okay. about Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, sure. sure. Um, um, so after you left Iraq at that point, yeah, just, on the, uh, just in the reserves? Yep. Uh, I get back to the States after I did my tour there, and I got put into the reserve status, which is not every day, but it's part-time now. I'm still an active service member, but not doing it every day. So I took the college option and I went to LSU and I got a degree in political science with a minor in history. And uh, I, I began working for the radio station and then here at the newspaper now. Still the whole time, com I'm committed to my reserve obligation. And in between all that, you have hurricanes and natural disasters that is another mission of ours being a reservist. So I was involved in the hurricane rescue effort, Hurricane Harvey. Um, I've gone to Germany a couple of times for 30 days at a lick to go and train allied nations over there in, in Estonia and um, um, Poland and, and places like that. So um, I, I did uh, some training missions over there, but uh, it brings me to here right now talking to you. That's how the my, my service record unfolded. Excellent. Okay, cool, man. And just in case, uh, you know, it, it, I, I should say this because it's true. <laughs> you know, I really do appreciate your service. Oh, thanks, you know, man. I appreciate that. And it means a lot coming from somebody like yourself, man. It does. Um, cool. You know, to hear that, it, it, it means a lot because it's not necessarily for me, but it's for those young guys 
that uh, I, I took over there, you know, and some of them didn't come back, you know, um, and I live with that. That's the cross I, I, I bear as a leader who's personally responsible for the accomplishment or failure of your unit. You, you carry that with you, you know, absolutely. Yeah, I'm I sure. Think, thank you very much. Yeah, no, you're welcome, man. Uh, thank you. Uh, okay, let's go into a few details. Actually, before we even hit any of this, I've got to I've got to hit you with this question. And this is a completely yeah. ridiculous yeah. one, considering yeah. all the heavy duty stuff we're, we're probably going to get into. But um, I just I never get to ask anybody about this. So you're an actual soldier who's in actual combat multiple times you are familiar yeah. with, I'm sure a number of different weapons and weapon yeah. systems and and the you know, and all of the 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 things that go into being in the military you're definitely yeah. a career soldier yeah so when you see <laughs> movies and tv yeah. shows right uh -huh. on this stuff what's your what uh, you know yeah. what do you yeah. how are yeah. they how, do they I get it know. right do they ever get it right <laughs> actually band of brothers and black hawk down and lone survivor are the only three movies i've seen that actually get it right they have paid attention to attention to detail and put the effort into getting the little minutia right because it's easy to film somebody shooting a weapon and wearing camouflage and and speaking the lines that we never talk to one another in real life but um when they do it like lone survivor black hawk down those were they took the time to get the minutia right like the way their helmets looked the sound of an automatic weapon it has a very distinct sound how the Blackhawks hover at us, you know, it's just those little minutia that was like, wow, man, it blew me out of my socks. I was like, that is correct. <laughs> Interesting. So when you, did you see like uh, Zero Dark Thirty or? Yeah, um, that's another one that got the minutia right, but I think the storyline screwed up. I, I don't think, yeah. the, uh, I think they combined the characters into that one female that actually did the heavy lifting. I think it was a, it spanned a bunch of people that actually did the heavy lifting to go and find or pinpoint bin Laden. I don't think it was that simple. I, I guess for cinematic purposes, they, uh, they condensed all of those many people into that one female that, uh, that got that done. But yeah, they, they got the minutia right. You know, some of the, what the SEALs said and what they wore and, and, and the type of helicopter they flew in. Yeah, 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 they got that right. But uh, like the storyline just threw me off. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I, I don't think it was that simple. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. And when you read, uh, you know, my biggest exposure to this has been uh, Lawrence Wright's book, which he won the Pulitzer for, The Looming Tower. Oh, yes. Oh, my God, man. I watched the series on Hulu. Another one blew me out of my socks because I remember this happening before the war started. I was a soldier when the towers were hit, when the first World Trade Center was, str was struck. I, I remember that. And then it culminated into the September 11th attack. And then, of course, like we talked about, my life changed dramatically. And yeah, exactly. And did an excellent job. Yeah, and the book is even better because you get a lot more behind the scenes of what was happening to inspire Osama bin Laden to the kind of mind think, think, thinking that and mindset that he had. Yeah. And you see Lawrence Wright actually traces it all back uh all the way back to the 50s and egypt and, and yeah. radical islamic fundamental uh writers and speakers who were pushing this very very intense uh obviously dogmatic obviously cultic yeah. um party line and an interpretation of of islamic 
scriptures and they and it was very mm -hmm. at the time it was a bit unconventional in some respects and certainly more violent than it needed to be and they were very 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 down on the west and that whole attitude filtered down to the you yeah. know the, the uh, Osama bin Laden other others in the bin Laden family etc and of course you see attitudes like this rife throughout the Middle East uh, and even in our allies like in Saudi Arabia so you have to yep. wonder why are we allied with some of these folks and of course oh, those questions lead yeah. down I, I, oh know. man I, I can I can expound on this for days but um, I've come to learn one thing there is nothing worse than a fanatic with money with i mean sick god awful money there's nothing worse than that i mean that's right um, these 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 workers these all field workers overseas i've seen them working in flip-flops with no hard hat for 50 cents a day and then they fall off and they go get somebody else to fill his spot and these sheets don't care man and it get, uh, and oil is still 18 dollars or 81 dollars a barrel or, or whatever it is uh, it's sick it's just sick money you know and then they have the leisure and the time to uh, propagate this this fanaticism, and then it takes that one guy who's got all the money and is fanatical. I mean, look at David Miscavige. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. You know exactly, and he's yeah. and he's a relatively tiny pipsqueak comparative yeah. to. But imagine if he was on the world stage. Oh, exactly. You know It'd I mean? be the God. same. That's right. And imagine if he had the e uh, ecclesiastical uh, level of the Pope. I mean, I mean, he would, he, he would, he would have. What? How does it sound, Batman? Uh, uh, some people just want to watch the world burn. He's That's right. That's right. Exactly. So yeah, pretty ugly, uh, ugly personality type. And, and when they get in charge, and unfortunately, there's plenty of people out there who were happy to throw money in and Bin Laden's direction. And and yeah. when he got his chance to hit the reset button and get into Pakistan with the with his people and mm -hmm. build back up his base that's of course what he started doing and yeah. and uh you know and america kind of turned its head in another direction when that you know and and there were all kinds of other factors it's not simple I'm not yeah. trying to make it simple but it was just a very unfortunate series of circumstances and events oh god yeah and um in, in iraq I, when we had taken our attention off of um off of afghanistan and, and went into iraq the, the biggest mistake, and, and, it's, and it's on the record as it being one of the biggest mistakes, well, two biggest mistakes. You disbanded the officer corps of the old Iraqi army because, and, and you barred anybody who was a Ba'ath Party member from serving in the new model army we were building. So here you have- And why was that significant? What was the Ba'ath Party? The Ba'ath Party was the party of Saddam Hussein. And just like okay. uh, Hitler did in Germany in World War II, and just like Stalin did, in the 30s through the 50s until he died, uh, their respective parties, in order to be a government official, in order to have some kind of semblance of trust, you must join the Communist or National Socialist Party. Well, that version in Iraq is the Ba'ath Party. And that's the, the party that uh, Saddam Hussein came to power with. So any government official had to, have, had to be a card-carrying Ba'ath member. Now, when we got in there and uh, Brennan got in there and he was the, the uh, coalition, chief dude or whatever, he banned anybody with any type of affiliation with the Ba'ath Party from serving in the government at all. So now you eliminated all your experience because not every card-carrying Ba'athist is a psychopathic murderer like Saddam Hussein and his family, okay? And then you disbanded the entire officer corps of the old army, okay? Um, now you, you, you don't have any experience. You got to build that from the ground up. 
And now you have a bunch of unemployed military age males who are pissed off because the electricity is not on and they're out of a job. They may have been waving American flags when you got there, but when reality set in, they got to feed their family. So now they're pissed. So here comes Al Qaeda sneaking into the country because they wasn't there before we got there, despite what they said on the news and propagated as our reason to go there. They come in there after the fact, they pay in. I mean, we've got, we made contact with one guy in Baghdad one time, and this guy, I mean, he, he, he was wounded, okay? And, and us being Americans, we went to assess the enemy that was just trying to kill us that we negotiated. We're trying to provide him aid to get him patched up. And in perfect English, he said, man, it's nothing personal. They come and paid me 10 grand. I got to feed my family. They told me to take pop shots at you. You know, it, it, it's, that's what you don't hear on the news. You know what I mean? Exactly. That, that was the reality on the ground. So Al-Qaeda moved in. They started paying all these military age males that know how to use weapons to take pop shot at Americans to attrit us enough to cause us to leave, which eventually happened. Right, because guerrilla warfare can be extremely effective in those circumstances. Because yep. you're trying to, you're an American example. Yeah, right. What a revolution! It was pretty freaking effective. Exactly. All right, let's go back to uh, in time to Afghanistan a little bit. What's it yep. like there? Um, there was a CIA analyst one time I was watching on TV that said. Um, in Afghanistan, like walking through the city streets, let's say Kandahar, is like if you can put yourself in the bar scene of Star Wars. I mean, it's very rowdy. People from every walk of life speaking 10,000 different languages. All of them have weapons, can't trust a single soul, and you got to watch your back at all times. That's wow, and that's, like, in the middle, that's in the middle of the civilized areas. Yeah, yeah, in the, in the mountains, in the, in the remote areas. Uh, Take that and factor that times 10, because now you got isolation as a factor. Now you got customs that are thousands of years old that they're not gonna change just because you show up. You know, there's a reason why they say Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires, because I mean, those people are very set in their ways and they're, they're very patriotic, if not tribal, and they, and they will fight to the death. They can shoot an AK-47 pretty accurately from uh, on the back of a horse while it's in full gallop, you know? So wow, they, that's they, not an easy they, skill. No. So it's an enemy to be respected and you to trust no one. Interesting. How, what is the, what is the technology situation over there? Well, when I got there, it was non-existent. It was the most heavily landmined nation in the world because the Russians had just got out of there less than 10 years prior to us arriving. And, um, I remember when I would go call home, there was this big satellite dish and there was a line you had to wait in a big green phone connected to the satellite dish and it was a relay when you got on it and you only had five minutes. From what I understand now, there's Skype, there's uh, internet, there's Wi-Fi, but I think it's around the bases, around the populated areas. I don't think they have that capability out in the mountains, but um, if that's the case, then it would be night and day. Like there is a place where there's no running water to where they hunt their food every day to living on the side of a mountain to, let's say you go into Kandahar and the technology jumps uh, 200 years into the future. You know? Yeah, exactly. You've been there for so Keep, long. Keeping in mind that you weren't supposed to trust anybody. And so yeah. I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say you didn't make a lot of friends with locals. Well, um, it, it's, I would say you could classify it as a political friendship. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. 
you have friends in Washington, D.C. that you can go to for favors, but they're not really your friend. You're not going to have them come over to the house, you know what I mean, and hang out. That, that's, that's the kind of friends you made in that type of situation. You, you cozied up to the local tri- tribal chiefs. You, you, um, you, you gave them boatloads of money at times, uh, whatever it took to win their favor, to win their loyalty. And we knew it was just superficial, but at least we're, we're making an effort to, to get them back to our side, to where we can start molding them into some kind of responsible government. You know, that was the objective. Okay, got it. And the government was supposed to operate out of? Kabul. Kabul, Um, okay. Yeah, Kabul. Um, And and the government's authority just extended, I would say, maybe 100 kilometers, 200 kilometers outside of Kabul. And then it it would quickly be non-existent when you got into the countryside because uh, communication is a problem. Um, uh, The constant uh, warfare is a problem. You know, the, the government, and then plus their troops are unreliable. You know, fanaticism has been the word of the day for the last 20 years over there. So it's hard to find recruits that you could build up a security service with that, that are, that'll, uh, that'll be loyal to the government, that'll, that'll appreciate the training and effectively carry it out. You know, I mean, I'm sure they made headroads into that, but at the time I was there, that was, it just didn't happen because you couldn't trust them. They, they were just fanaticized. I mean, all of them, you know, every, every, every person, that we would meet could be a potential enemy. They could have the full intention of trying to kill you because they're that, uh, for the lack of a better term, they're brainwashed. You know, they're, they're, that's, that's the way they think. That's the way, and, and they use that as the, the justification for their behavior. And it's tribal. Yeah. So yeah. you have, you go out in the country and, and that's a good point you said there because I was gonna ask about that, about you know how far out does the government's reach effectively go? Because if you don't have, you find out, I think, and tell me what you think about this, but it seems to me that you learn very quickly that these old adages actually have some truth to them in situations like that. We've, we've civilized to a point in the West where we have the time and luxury to have arguments about offensive words. Yeah. In a place like Afghanistan, nobody gives a shit about any of that. It, no. is, it is scraping out a, an existence in a very, very hard country to live in that is yeah. the graveyard of empires that has been invaded yeah. countless times. How, so the, I guess the, is it, is, I'm guessing I want you to tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. You know, the warlords out there, these tribal leaders who lead these bands of people and, over whatever geography they're claiming ownership to, Yeah, they seem to me to be the effective quote unquote government for their region. Yeah. And whatever fealty they pay or are bribed into by the uh-huh. established government is mm-hmm. as effective as that government is out there. Exactly. It's, that government is as effective as the, the, the highest paid warlord. Right. Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Because that is the government's extension of its yeah. ability to enforce its will through force. Yeah. You got that term where like he's an asshole, but he's my asshole. Right. Well, that's what that's that's the philosophy. That, that and that must be the balancing people. act that it's sort of you got the idea of um, spinning plates, you know, on the on the on the spikes. Right. And you have to yep. spin the plate and keep it going. Then you got to do another one and another yeah. one and another one. And you get the idea that the guys who are heading up the government in Afghanistan, I'm talking about the native leaders, the people who were born there, who actually are the government, yeah. have to play that game with yeah. all of these regional people you're right because you got costumes and you got the uh 
and you got the Tajiks, you got all different types of culturally ethic, ethnical differences, stark differences between the, the different tribes that, that inhabit that, that area. It's across the roads of the world. So uh, you got the Uzbeks there, Tajiks, the, the, you know, they speak Farsi and then some speak Pashtun. It's crazy. So you, you gotta have a, you gotta have somebody that's gonna run for an elected office that's be able to juggle all of that and still produce something effective, which I think, given the circumstance and and and, and what that those leaders are, are faced with, they have thrown in their lap. I think they're doing a, a pretty decent job, you know. Well, all things considered, I think so too, yeah. given the circumstances of the situation and. Let's not forget now, we pile on top of this whole picture. Like if, if we were not involved in any way, if mm -hmm. India was not involved in any way, if Russia wasn't involved in any way, uh, yeah. Saudi, you know, Iraq, et cetera, if none of these guys were poking their noses into this, you know, hornet's nest that we call Afghanistan, it mm -hmm. would be bad enough trying to deal with this and move it yes. up to the 21st century as it is. Yes. But then you start piling on all these external influences and, and issues where we go in there because we're looking, I guess, initially, and, and again, confirm this for me, but we went in there because we were absolutely sure that's where bin Laden was. Yeah, and, and he was. And, and that, like, right. was a, that was a, uh, a causeless belly, as they say. That was the reason to go to war. That was, in fact, the first time ever in the history of NATO that clause number five, an attack on one, is considered an attack on all, was activated was for September 11th. That's right. why the world showed up there. And because we were that without, it was a no shit scenario. He was in there, his, his tentacles, his, his money was in there. We're gonna go get it, we're gonna flush it out. And of course you're left with the, the, what's left of a governmental structure there once you clean all of that out or make it uh, scared and go run it off. Well, exactly. The other the other factor being that this was unconventional to any other situation that America had ever had to deal with that I can recall, because we were not going after another country. We weren't declaring war against no, the yeah. nation of Afghanistan, nor yeah. were we declaring war against Syria, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran. We were going after an individual who was countryless, but that was kind of his power because he could yeah. go anywhere. That was his ability to hide and, and, yeah. and hide in plain sight because he he had no passport. His citizenship was revoked by Saudi Arabia. He got kicked out of Sudan. He got kicked out of uh, I think um, another country in Africa. He I, he was responsible for the Black Hawk Down. Incident. Oh, Somalia! I think he was down yeah, in Somalia. That, yeah, that was a test run. He bought all the weapons there, you know, just to see to make the Americans bleed. They might run, and sure enough, we did. Uh, once that Black Hawk Down incident, that emboldened them actually. You That's know, right. To, to carry on, and if you notice, like we were talking about Lawrence Wright and those incidents leading up to September 11th, they were all escalatory. Each one was worse than the one before. That's right. That's right. And I'll correct myself. I don't think it was Somalia. I think it was Ethiopia that he had gone into. Yeah, he probably uh, was hiding in Ethiopia, but the, the Black Hawk Down incident was in Somalia. Right uh, no, of course. Yes, yes. Re related to, but not directly brought about yes. by yeah. Osama Just bin Laden. To keep him at a safe distance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because he was all about influence uh, peddling. He was about um, taking down the West. And yeah. he executed a strategy uh, that was something that Hubbard actually talked about, that the Sea Org was executing when they were out wow. on the ocean, which was this General Fabian strategy. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was Fabian. Show, yeah. yeah, show up, attack, 
disappear. Nobody knows where you are. That way they can't hit you. Yep. You know, and and it led us around the Middle East, you know, by the nose for a number of years. And we made all kinds of mistakes as a result of that. You know, right. And and uh, and a lot of opportunities were wasted because there was a um, there was a uh, I guess a political sense that you didn't want to come across as being too brutal. It was the '90s, man. I mean, there was no war going on. Bill Clinton was president. We had a surplus, and he was getting some on the side. That was the things that we were worried about. You know what I mean? So um, the last thing we we were concerned with was uh, some uh, training camp in Afghanistan. Where's that at? You know, uh, until it it became very real for us the next millennium. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and unfortunately that, that whole thing was described quite well in the book, uh, you know, Looming Tower. So I'm not going to yeah. try to re- reiterate it all here, but getting yeah. back to your personal experience now. So mm-hmm. what else was, what else can you tell us about Afghanistan and your experience there? Like what okay. would, what, you know, to to Americans over here who look at that place, like, Oh, they're just a bunch of towel heads. They're a bunch of idiots. Oh, yeah. You know, they just write it off well, with these labels. Well, well those, those labels uh, have some truth to it. Not to say that they're all idiots, but they're very misinformed. Mm-hmm. When we got there, being an American soldier, you're, you're cutting edge of 21st century. You got the gear, the, the protective uh, helmet, glasses, weapon system. I mean, you're looking like something out of a science fiction movie. And to those people, that are that under the Taliban, they couldn't have radio. They couldn't have, they couldn't watch a movie. They couldn't have newspapers. Women weren't allowed to read. I mean, it was crazy. So when we got there and we started, you know, um, moving on these certain villages, we, of course we would take prisoners. And, and this one example I'm about to give you pretty much encapsulates, encapsulates what we're talking about. Um, this one guy we got, he was a suspected insurgent. He was shooting at us from a certain building. We, we got him. Um, he was intact. He, he wasn't shot or nothing, but we moved on him and we were able to subdue him. Um, I had a uh, private with me. Uh, at this time, I was the rank of sergeant. I had a private with me um, who was going to be my scribe to write down everything that I was, I was going to search this guy to make sure that he had no intelligence on him, no, no triggers on him that could uh, set off a body bomb and kill a bunch of people um, and, you know, and whatnot. So, are you familiar with like those little uh, pin lights that you could attach to your keychain? It's got the infrared. You can look for your keys at night or the hole to the. Uh, of course, you know I mean? yeah. Yeah, you're familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, ninety nine cent. They're ninety nine yeah, yeah. cents at the dollar store. Yeah, exactly. I had one of those because it was in the middle of the night, and I was going to check him from head to toe, open his mouth, make sure he had no triggers in there, check his clothes. Uh, so I, 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 I passed that pin light all the way down his boots, and I told the private, I said, he's got no. Uh, what we call PIR, primary intelligence requirements on him. Um, no, no explosives. We're taking him to intelligence at this time. So he wrote down the time. I took this guy to intelligence. I looked at my watch, the little pin light, and, and the bad guy, he's, he's sitting there looking at me, and I told the private my time. So we take him to the intelligence tent. I turn him over to the, to the intelligence spooks, and I walk out. My job's done. About a half hour later, that, that agent comes out laughing. And I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? How come you're not talking to that guy in there? He was like, dude, it was easy. He sold out the canaries. And I'm like, what? I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, uh, he thought you scanned his brain with that pin light and put the information in your watch. And if, if he was going to lie, I was going to beat him. Oh, wow. That is the mentality that they operate on. Wow. Wow. Content. So that's, that is uh, 
They have a totally one disorder. example of many yep. that you are exactly. So, okay. so you can put yourself in a mind frame like that's how that's how they see it. Uh, that's how they saw Americans. They thought we were so. I mean, we're descending from the sky with all this firepower. We look like robots. Oh my God! I mean, you know, the, the sky's the limit as to what your imagination can say. What what we're you know really are you know Always right. So, yeah, so we really need to have a reality check on, oh, if they just got some cell phones and Starbucks, everything would be okay. Exactly. This is, this is a very gradual evolution we have to push in there, yeah. if we should even be in there at all. And I'm yeah. starting to really wonder about the, you know, the wisdom of I, that. I was always taught that, the, that the, the way a war ends is just as important as the reason why it started. Those, those, those things are not linear. They change throughout the entire, I mean, we've been there 18 years. The reasons why we went in are not the reasons why we're there now. I mean, in between all of that, you have, um, you have circumstances that have changed, things that as a soldier, I discovered the real reasons why we should be there. It's not for the Statue of Liberty and internet and free market. But when I saw like a certain village that we had secured one time, um, the Taliban had just left. I mean, there, there were women in their full burqas, those, those heavy-duty gray ones, come out of their homes, got on their knees and started wailing, crying, wailing, because they were overjoyed that we were there, because they could come out of their house and not, be, not have to fear to be beat with an iron rod for not being in the company of their husband or, or, uh, or their uh, male relative. I mean, can you imagine? Wow. You know, and they were actually happy that you yeah, were there. They were, they, were, they were overjoyed because they, they knew it was like their personal deliverance. I mean, little examples like that, it's just, it blows your mind. It, it, it'll give you a lump in your throat and, and you're talking to the interpreter, like, what are they doing? And they said, they're very happy. They're, um, they're so happy because you're here, because they know they, they, they can you know, listen to the radio, read a newspaper, walk outside of their homes with all of that crap on their head, you know? Wow. It, 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 things like that, that, that made you reinforce your, your belief as to why you were really there, you know? Right. It must be weird, to say the least. And we'll go over this in more detail later, I think, when I have some, some other things to ask you about. But just to comment cool. on this, it must be weird to come back here after seeing that kind of thing for an extended period of time, you were not over there for short periods of time. This wasn't no, a tourist right. trip for you. No. You were in the shit for a long yep. time. Yep. Come back here and see Nike hijabs and people talking yeah. about, you know, how wonderful these things are when you yeah. have literally with your own two eyes watched these oppressed women who have yeah. been oppressed their entire life. Yeah. You know, yeah, like crying in joy I, that I you mean, are the, there, and the oppression is so was so sick, was so outside of, of of my belief structure of what I was taught my whole life. It was so far out there that I had to actually ask myself, "Man, am I awake? Is this for real? Am I actually seeing this?" And it was, and uh, yeah. So you, you come back, you rotate back to the world, and you and you see these things, and you're like. I just shrug my shoulders like these people have no idea what they're talking about. You know, <laughs> they, 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 they have, they don't have a clue, you know? No. And, and it's, it's unfortunate that our media is, yeah. is not doing the job that it yeah. should in, in informing on this it, stuff. 
you're right. And, yeah, and okay. the other opposite, like in Iraq, that was a, a different spectrum of enemy. Because when you were in Iraq, you were dealing with a population that was educated, that, you know, it was a socialist country because the Ba'ath Party is a socialist party. So, the, I mean, they couldn't find jobs, whatever, but university education was free. They didn't have jobs for them to fulfill, but they were smart, very educated people. You know, um, that's where civilization began. You know, I've seen the remnants of the, what was the hanging gardens of Babylon, you know, outside of Baghdad. I mean, that's where, I mean, all those ancient books, that's the Genesis, you know? So these people are not dumb or uneducated in any way. They, they really, and they appreciated our presence to a degree. But what I found the, the biggest difference was that it was the political system before we got there that was evil. It wasn't, right. uh, Salam Hussein didn't tolerate any of that fanatical Muslim crap. He was, he was a politician in the Stalinist sense, 110%. He was, he was a Hitlerite, a Stalinist, a mob boss, all rolled into one. And that kind of pain and that kind of depravity was on a totally different spectrum than what you saw in Afghanistan. Those guys, I think that's, that's a, uh, they, they were, that, that was three different shades of, of evil, you know, on a different level because they use politics as their vehicle. They use the government as their vehicle. You know, like he built palaces. I mean, the, 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 the palaces that Saddam Hussein built in his country were so many and grotesque. There was just, his people are starving in Afghanistan with all these sanctions that were in place since the 80s. And he still finds money to build palaces, you know? And one palace was for his generals. Uh, we personally, I personally said I got pictures of it. It's a big pit that you walk up to. And in this pit, you have these little cages uh, that dot, you know, around the circumference of the pit at the bottom. And what they would do is they would go to the north Iraqi provinces, generals, and would, they would round up like Christians or people of Christian heritage. And they would drag them back to that palace. And they would have hungry jackals on chains in the pit. And they would throw these people into the pit. And then they would bet money on how fast the person could get torn apart. Wow. Yeah. Talk about some Christian persecution. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it wasn't because it was a religious based persecution. It was a political based persecution. Because in order to be in the po political structure of Iraq, you had to be a Sunni Muslim. So and uh, Christians were a minority. So like any any minority in a in a system that is very top heavy, whether you're Christian or not, whatever the label is, you're going to get scooped up and picked on, whether you're Jewish whether you were a Christian or whether you're a Jew in Nazi Germany or, um, or, or you know, um, the Cossacks in, in, in the Soviet Union during Stalinist times, whatever, whatever the label is, if you're the minority, you're getting handled. You know, you're, you're not, that, that's, that's the, the internal enemy that these dictators use to justify their existence. The, yeah, it's interesting because Saddam Hussein, like you just mentioned, you know, fundamentalist Islamic you know, radicals. He wasn't interested in any of that. He was more on the secular military side, but yeah. he used the religion and the religious angle to his advantage to hold and main, to gain and then maintain power. Yep. Uh, and he, I guess he just sort of fed the red meat to his Sunni masses that he had yep. in his country, because that's what Iraq was or is. Uh, yep. Is it still that way? Well, all the strike you see now is because when we went in there and destroyed the infrastructure, and, and everybody who worked 
in the government or had a decent job had to be a SUNY and a Bath Party member. Or a Bath Party member. So we eliminated that. So the other biggest big population there are the Shia Muslims. So the strife you see now is the Shias in power having payback because they have been uh, the actual majority. The Sunnis were the minority, but now they're in control and they have all our modern weapons that we left there. And they're using that with uh, vengeance uh, on, yeah, on, the, yeah. on, on the Sunnis as payback as, as a group. You know, there's, that's, right. the, that's what you see. That's the genesis of the fight that you see going on there now. Hey everyone, a quick word here about The Great Courses Plus, one of my favorite online educational services which you can take advantage of right now. Have you ever heard the phrase, you don't know what you don't know? Well, The Great Courses Plus is the perfect place to help fill in those gaps. There are thousands of lectures on virtually any topic you can think of. Even those you might not think of, but once you see them, you'll be like, what? I want to do that! And they're not put together by amateurs, but instead by top professionals and professors. You can take courses on the human brain, cultures of the world, physics in our universe, or even learn to meditate or how to cook. And the Great Courses Plus app makes it easy to watch or listen anytime, anywhere. This month, I want to recommend strategic thinking skills. Did you know that there are ways you can train your brain so you really can make more sense of this crazy world? It isn't easy, but it's really valuable and something you should look into. Healthy questioning and carrying a strategic masquerade can help you to prevent future mistakes or the disintegration of ideas. Right now, and for a limited time only, my listeners can get an entire month for free. Sign up now through my exclusive URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Do it today. I'm sure you'll be glad you did. Interesting. How does that, from your experience on the ground there, uh, and I'm glad we went from Afghanistan to Iraq here because of, I've, yeah. again, so many questions. Um, so we have Iran right next to Iraq, yep. and Iran and Saudi, I guess, would be considered the major powers in the Middle East at this point since we've taken Iraq off the board. Yeah. Um, it, uh, and left a bit, like you just mentioned, a bit of a chaotic hellhole there. Uh, mm -hmm. What did you see of or hear of Iran's presence while you were on the ground out there? They were making inroads. You see, whenever um, uh, al-Maliki, the, the first prime minister of Iraq in the new government that we stood up before we left, he was, he was financed and has Iranian ties because um, he's a Shia and uh, the Iranians are Shias. But um, to backtrack a little bit, when we got in there and eliminated that whole uh, military structure, we got rid of that whole Saddam Republican Guard military and, and all those affiliated with it. Like I was telling you, you had all those unemployed military age males. You see, that's where ISIS came from because Al-Qaeda morphed into this ISIS monster. You see what I mean? Because it was the Sunnis trying to have a resurgence against the uh, Shia infrastructure that was set in place after we had eliminated it. So those, those Sunnis that were in the Ba'ath party 
that were in the military, in that infrastructure, fled to Al-Qaeda with that military experience. And uh, of course, a new leader came to the fore and it, it got morphed into Al-Qaeda to the 10th power, and that's ISIS. So, and they had at their disposal, American-made hardware, because those Shias that were, that, that were in charge of the government, when they made contact, a lot of times they would drop their weapons and run, you know, and abandon their vehicles. So they were in uh, Abram tanks, they were in Humvees, they had M4 rifles, I mean, the best on the market, you know, and that's what made ISIS so lethal. Is this, is oh, this the reason that you hear that old thing about Obama was the one who made ISIS or something like that was, I mean, I thought that was a ridiculous meme when yeah, I first heard that, but yeah. this is sort of the backstory of that. Look, yeah, I, I guess that's, that's where, it, yeah, I guess so. But this of, is all pre-Obama. So that's, that's again, kind of yeah, a silly thing to say. Exactly. Because I mean, it, it, we, Joe, w. Bush got us in there. His neocons that he had surrounding him advised him, Donald Rumsfeld, that other guy, um, Cheney. Cheney, they were the, they were the, uh, like that Billy Crystal guy. They're they're all neocons. They have a certain philosophy. It's different than a, than a moderate conservative that you might meet like myself. You know, I I tend to go right, but I'm pretty much in the center. Um, Almost like a Reagan-like kind of uh, conservative, fiscally responsible, large milk, that kind of thing. Those are not. They're big spenders, and they have a world domination worldview. That's a neocon, uh, I've been taught. And they mm-hmm. advised Bush, look, Saddam Hussein was killing, trying to kill your daddy. <laughs> uh, he didn't finish the job in 91. Uh, there's these tentative links to al-Qaeda, which didn't exist. And chemical weapons, the world is on our side. We've got to go now. And I, I think that's how it's oversimplified, but that's how that went down. I think you're exactly right. And, and we got in there, and and... Uh, they expected us to liberate the country and, and leave. They had no forward plan. It was David Petraeus that had to come in there with a troop surge and a plan called the COIN, counterinsurgency, to deal with the threat that we were just having handed to us because, you know, we didn't have a plan going in there with that, you know? Yeah, exactly. This is where the rubber meets the road on on the on the real problems of a civilian uh political you know oversight of a military operation or a military force right as you are going to run into stuff like this because the presidential term is four years no mm-hmm. guarantee the guy's going to get reelected even if he does it's only eight and when you yeah. look at long-term invasion and, and and extrication from a national you know from another sovereign nation you're looking mm-hmm. at you know, years and years of commitment, and and because yeah. of the changing tides of poli- of politics and policies, you know, we a, yeah. a stable State Department would sort of smooth keep things smooth, but the State Department doesn't appear to be a very stable no. place. No, it 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 doesn't. Um, they come up with a template, whereas the Department of Defense, if it turns into a military operation, hammers out the fine details, and and sometimes those details aren't what the civilians want to hear. You know, right. when I was in Iraq in 2010, um, we as military uh, personnel wasn't necessarily being targeted anymore. They were targeting the Iraqis that were trying to stand up and train. And we were trying to tell the political leadership, you know, not me personally, but the chain of command, um, was trying to tell them, look, I understand you want to get out of here, but we're here. Regardless of how you see it or how you feel about us coming here, we're here. Now, this 
broken baby is our responsibility. We've got to fix it. To leave too early will cause a major problem. And of course, you know, we closed up shop. I mean, and granted, I mean, Obama wanted to keep his promise. I mean, you know, I voted for the guy. You know, I, 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 I don't, as a soldier, I don't want to be perpetually fighting a war forever. I mean, I go to war to prevent people younger than me, and I don't have any kids, but if I were, to prevent them from going to war. I don't want a perpetual conflict that would see him grow up. Like, I got soldiers under my charge right now that were born on September 11th. They're 18 now, and they're, they're ready to fight. They don't even know what September 11th is. The whole, you know what I mean? It just blows my mind sometimes how, how, how twisted this whole thing got, you know? But that's a different subject for another time. But Fair enough. I'm just saying that, you know, the political leadership sometimes don't want to hear it. And they'll go against the advice of their military leaders there. A Schwarzkopf once said, God rest his soul. He said, the reason why we didn't go in Iraq and handle it in 91 during a desert storm was because we're going to be like a dinosaur carpet. And nobody took his advice. He got out of the army. He thought it was just blustering. Times have changed, moved on. But he was right. We were a dinosaur in a carpet. Yeah, exactly. Man, interesting. Very, very interesting. All right. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit more about some of this because I'm curious about um, how you see things, you know, again, soldier on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you are not at top of chain of command, but you've moved up a bit over the yeah. years, right? So you have a little yeah. bit more view than, yeah. you know. The, I, have a, I have what they call a tactical influence. As officers get in, they may be tactical at, at the beginning, but they move through the ranks and become, uh, they, they enter a strategic level. They look at the big picture. As an enlisted man that makes his way up the ranks, you become a pro- professional soldier at the from the tactical perspective. So, I mean, I'm in charge of about 50 soldiers now. I have a lot of experience. I, I, I'm, I'm tactically sound. You know, I, I don't have to always reference the manuals or be uh, questioning myself when I'm on maneuvers. If I was to go into a hot spot today, I'm quite confident I know how to get there, accomplish the objective, and get out. So that's, right. that's the biggest difference. Got it. And what sort of uh, you mentioned when we were uh, when you gave me your your breakdown here and 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 in some posts and stuff, you've mentioned how you have been shot out of the sky, you know, yeah. stuck in situations that absolutely were not at all what was predicted yeah. for, which, of course, you want to try to predict for. But how can you with, you know, yeah. an infinity of, of possibilities? What's the worst situation you've been in? Oh, man, Uh, that operation I was telling you about, Operation Anaconda, my first actual combat mission while I was in Afghanistan uh, um, in 2001, 2002. That mission, like I was telling you, they got it all wrong. Intelligence confirmed, allegedly, there was 300 enemy personnel. It ended up being 1,300. We as Americans are doctrinally taught to go into a fight with a three-to-one ratio. For every soldier they have, we're sending three. For every piece of equipment in, we're sending three to ensure that we win the fight. It's called fire superiority. And that's the only way you get that in a fight is if you use that one to three doctrinal um, instruction. If you, if you use what you're taught into the fight, you're, you're, it's guaranteed to win. Only if your assessment of the bad guys is correct. <laughs> because 300 turned into 1300, now we're fighting a one-on-one fight in a, in a, in a, in a, in a piece of terrain and 10,000 feet elevation where oxygen is so thin that helicopters have have a hard time chopping um uh, an enemy that was briefed by our alleged allies to meet us on our landing zones we had no element of surprise we our our uh, ability to speedily get to the to the landing zone was compromised 
and our uh, violence of action was compromised because um, we uh, confronted an enemy on a one-to-one -one basis. You know, that, th that, that it's always in threes. I was taught that the three key elements to winning a fight is speed, security, and violence of action. Any one of those are compromised, you're not winning the fight. So all three went down in that fight. And that three-day operation turned into 11 days. And um, we didn't have the water for it. Our chow was low. I mean, our units were scattered. It was in terrain that was, you know, uh, every breath you take at sea level, you got to take three up there at that elevation. So that was the worst I've seen. I mean, I've seen uh, helicopters take an RPG around to a rotor blade and spin out. Um, it, it, you know, that was the worst type of situation you could. Um, I, I think Sean Naylor wrote a book about it. It's called Not a Good Day to Die. If you ever have the time, it's kind of army uh, terminology heavy, but it's a good book. It explains it all. Wow. How, just to, just because I'm curious, how'd you get out of there? I mean, 11 yeah. goddamn days under fire, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Um, we were down on the 11th day. I didn't know the 12th day, if the 12th day was going to show up and I was going to be out of ammunition. Um, eventually, in that, in that area, um, we, we stopped, looked, and listened. After every engagement, we tried to move toward the sound of gunfire. You know, you try to use your, your battlefield instincts. I mean, your, your FM radios are not working because the signal's bouncing everywhere. You don't have a GPS signal because that was pretty much before that time. I mean, we had GPS, but they weren't the most reliable thing. Um, and uh, we were running low on water. We had to take snow from the mountains and put it in our canteens and sit on it to warm it up so we can drink. Um, we were running low on chow. Our ammo was dangerously low. So we just moved to the sound of gunfire, and we took one day at a time. And I, I was just praying to God that the next day we would bump into a friendly unit. And um, as luck would have it, on that 11th day, um, the, the, our main battalion headquarters, our regimental headquarters, had uh, consolidated enough to send out search parties for um, the uh, units that weren't accounted for. And as we were maneuvering through this engagement area, we ran into one of those search parties that said, hey, you know, uh, gave the signals back and forth for Americans. Okay, look, disengage from where you're at. You're going to move uh, uh, 15 clicks on this azimuth. That's where the friendlies are. Uh, what did you see? What did you have to engage along your, you know, show me on the map where you've been and what you've been doing, that kind of thing, so they can get the intelligence and pass it up. Wow. It must be, it must take an incredible force of will to be thrust into a situation of worst possible circumstances like that. I mean, the only thing you, I guess, had going for you was you weren't physically wounded. No, and no, no, no. you're and you've got, you know, whoever you have around you and you've got crashed helicopters, low supplies, etc. It must take an incredible force of will yeah. to one stay with the mission. But I mean, at the same time, where are you going to go? Yeah. And two, persevere and keep going. And, and then when you say, something to me, I am not a professional soldier, I would never even pretend to have that mindset. You yeah. know, you say something to me about how you're going to keep moving towards the enemy fire. And I just think to myself, yeah. my God, yeah, it's a bad situation when the safest place is towards the sound of gunfire. Because yeah. I mean, once 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 we realized that we were not in, a, we were dropped off in a compromised position, we were making contact the minute we got off the birds. Um, and um, we had no friendlies around us, because each helicopter carry can carry only a certain amount of people um you you have to um all of a sudden the mission is out the window now you're in survivability mode now you're gonna you're gonna use 
your terrain, your, your military decision-making process, assess the terrain, and move to the direction that you think would be the best to provide cover and concealment for your guys, uh, the, the, the best safety uh, that can be asked for in a situation like that, because you want, don't want to needlessly compromise your guys, but yet you want to get to a position where you can be a force multiplier and link up with friendly units, because the more, the better. Right, right. Wow. Well, I, you know, it must have been an amazing amount of luck and skill to have been able to survive that. More luck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> More luck, man. Yeah. yeah. But those skills, I mean, they, they count for yeah. something, you know? Yeah, I, man. I, I mean, uh, that, that military discipline really came in. That training really took over um, in ways that I never would have thought, you know, like that muscle memory thing that the military beats into your head really paid off. You know, when you made contact with the enemy, the things you say, the way you move, all that training kicked in. And um, that's what I attribute that uh, overwhelming firepower, a, a motivated team and assets. When you see the United States Air Force, after you link up with your friendly unit and you finally see an officer there that has comms with the U.S. Air Force and you see that American made B-52 coming over that engagement area about to lay a lot of hurt and discontent on what was trying to kill you, it's a satisfying feeling. I'm not trying to be a masochist or nothing, but as a soldier, that's a good sight. Absolutely it is. And I, I don't doubt it for a, for a second. I mean, we're talking about saviors here. And you make a very good point. And, I, and something I would like to highlight for a second, you know, this the muscle memory, the training takes over. People have asked me many times, and I've had very deep conversations with people about whether military training or boot camp is a, is a kind of cult indoctrination. And I have, yeah. and I have maintained this whole time, uh, without having that experience myself and only experiencing it secondhand or through movies or, or, mm -hmm. or what I've read of the experience, I have always maintained that it is not uh, a destructive cult and it is not a cult mentality that is, that is fomented there. It is a discipline that is being instilled. Yeah. And these are survival skills because of the yeah. situations you guys are going to be put into. Now, I'm not saying exactly. that this is a perfect system by any stretch. Of the no, 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 no. Yeah. I, mean, I think they, they, I, I go the, ahead. The, the assets, I say assets, but the 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 way uh, they get in your head to break you down, to discipline you, I guess can resemble that. But where those two uh, stray is the fact that once your time is up, you're you're done. You get out. You can leave. Um, your your seniors, your 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 sergeants in charge, or your officers in charge. Are, are don't have uh, unlike popular belief don't have unbridled authority they are they are accountable to you the soldier they are leading because they are there for you the minute they 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 fail in that in that mission to take care of you as a soldier to provide you with the needs the training to, to accomplish your mission it will reflect on them and it will be relieved you know, so that's where the differences are. But I say in the beginning, yeah, I mean, there's, there's I guess there's only one human way to, to get inside somebody's head. I mean, that's the reason why they shave your head. You know, it, it's not, it's a sanitary thing, but it's also, it mentally reduces you to equal. There's, there's exactly. no Scottish hairstyles there. That's Everybody's right. Everybody's and beautiful, man. You're a nine-digit number in a salad suit, and that's it. That's you know, right. Nobody that's cares about your color like. or your nope. background or even nope. your education. Nope. You know, that's you, you it could is be it a is a rocket surgeon from <laughs> India, but 
you, you join the army and that's, and that's, that's the standard. That's right. You know? And if you don't that's meet right. the standard, they'll kick you out. I mean, I've seen people get kicked out of basic training. Oh, of course. Of course. As, as it should be. Exactly. Because yeah. because of the situation, exactly because of the situation you found yourself in on your yeah. first combat mission. Yep. You know, like, I, it I, can I was happen. glad that I was around people that volunteer. You know, a lot of people say, bring back the draft. I don't believe in that. Because, you know, you don't want us, given the, the technologically heavy, uh, technology heavy military that we're in now, a draft would be impractical because it takes years of training to get somebody up to a, a level. It's not like back in the day where they just send you through three weeks of boot camp, give you a rifle and go to it. I, I don't ever think a war will ever come to that, God forbid, but it, I mean, I've never seen ever. But I, I think uh, modern warfare, it's outside of those. Uh, it, it's, it, it's so, a draft wouldn't be practical, you know? Um, I was glad I was around people that volunteered to not only join, but to be in the unit that I was in because it took us a certain level of selection of uh, uh, some people call it hazing or a certain level of motivation and want and drive to be in that unit because it wasn't an elite unit. They considered the varsity team of the army. I mean, by no means were we Rangers of special operations. We had our own mission set, but for that mission set, we were, we were the ones that the president dialed 911. That's who he got when he dialed 911, when the balloon went up. He got us, you know, because we were a rapid response force that was able to bring the fight to the enemy. And um, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, that brings to mind another question. Um, you know, we often think of infantry as, you know, these guys with a rifle walking around the countryside. You know, you see World War II movies, especially, and yeah. it sort of influences that. Or or Vietnam movies, even to a degree. You just got a patrol of guys walking around in the jungle. It looks kind of random yeah. on in a movie or something, yeah. but it's, it's obviously not. And and that leads me to my question, actually, which is that you guys are not just cannon fodder. No, no. I mean, that, that way of thinking went by the wayside in the 70s when the Army reverted to an all-volunteer force. Um, they started professionalizing the MCO Corps, which um, there are certain levels of leadership education that an enlisted man has to go through to earn his stripes. And you've got to be tactically and doctrinally sound. Uh, you've got to prove that you can lead troops. I mean, that kind of mentality for infantry troops went to the wayside in the 70s when Colin Powell was the chief of staff, actually. And he initiated an all-volunteer force and start professionalizing the volunteers. And we believe in a policy of quality over quantity. That's what differentiates the Western forces. Uh, you have a million dollar soldier versus like China that will field a million $3 soldiers. You know what I mean? Right, right. Where do you think we stand internationally in terms of a, a force. We are so scattered. I mean, we have bases all over the place. We've got this huge yeah. command. We have, we have the largest military budget on the planet by far. Not even, no, nobody even comes remotely close. Um, do yeah. you think this is money from, that's being well spent? I think so, because you got to look at it. I mean, our GDP is so large. We spend only 12% of our GDP, I think, if that, on our military. But our GDP is so large, we're such a wealthy country that 12% can buy you a lot. Unlike Russia, that's like 50% of their GDP, and they still have crappy equipment, you know what I mean? And a, and a large force to field, supply, feed, train, and equip. So um, the, 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 I think the biggest bang for your buck, though, is to give the impression 
to any enemy overseas that it's what you're going to go up against is going to be not not to sound arrogant but it's going to be your worst nightmare like that recent medal of honor recipient said we as soldiers must be professional enough to give the impression to our future enemy that if you go to war with us somebody else is going to raise your children that's the impression that it's a deterrent so if if they see us constantly the, the enemy intelligence is always out there snooping and pooping if they're doing assessments and they're thinking hey look the americans are always ready these guys are constantly trained they're well equipped they're well fed i mean it would be a a, a serious disaster to go up against us now some will try you know because you have dictators that are fanatical some will try but i think on on, on the whole that um i think we're in a pretty good position because we provide a bit now now what gets what, what, what emboldens the enemy i think is in this age of constant communications he's they they witness the discourse among our population that they don't have in their own countries so that i think would embolden them more than assessing the the, the fighting readiness of the u.s military makes so, total sense and leads right a, dra a drastic mistake because <laughs> yeah, no i get it well, i definitely yeah. get it well, that's good because it leads uh, your answer there leads me exactly where I wanted to go next, and that is back here to the United States. Um, we are a divided nation right now, perhaps more so than we have been in a very long time, at least when you look at the illusionary world of social media mm -hmm. and cable news networks yeah. and, and that sort of thing. And I say illusionary because we need to keep be very, very clear on the fact that that is a world that exists in cyberspace. It's not the real world no. so i want to differentiate those two things because i don't want to get into um fear mongering or something no, like that I, yeah. I, I want to be realistic in our assessments but i have i have questions again from a, from yeah. a military perspective having gone over there having seen everything that you have seen mm -hmm. um you know direct eyeballs on you know boots on the ground etc at at multiple locations at multiple levels over a long period of time in a general sense, how mm -hmm. do you see, where do you think the civilian population that weighs in on this stuff back home now and where we've come to now, where, where do you see that we get it right and we get it wrong? Well, um, I think uh, maybe a, a year or two ago, I had, uh, uh, it was a thread, I think Jeff Hawkins had made uh, on a comment that we were all commenting on. And I had made the comment like, um, man, I wish, the, I, 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 I wish for the days that uh, politics was civil, kind of like as a, as a joke, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I know it's never been really civil. And, and Jeff Hawkins said, when was that? You know, not being mean or anything, but he was just saying, when was that? And I, and I, was, I was trying to point out a time where even though there was divisiveness, there was still some type of professional courtesy there in that own sick world <laughs> of politics. There was still some professional courtesy in there somewhere. I think that's the major difference. But as a history student, I look to the examples this country has had over the years in, uh, in war and out of war. Um, during the revolution, we were divided. Civil war, God knows. I mean, that's the definition of division. Vietnam, there's a storm. I mean, we, we, we have been a divided population. That's in our DNA. If we wasn't divided, I would be worried. You know what I mean? Um, 
discourse is, is needed. Public discourse, transparent discourse is needed because as a soldier like myself, who has sworn to follow the orders of the officers appointed over me, if I'm sent somewhere to accomplish the mission and it ended up, and I ended up being hoodwinked, I want somebody, a civilian, to be confident enough that he can cause enough, or she can cause enough ruckus to have that political decision reversed and get me back home. Because if I left on my own, I would be abandoning my unit and, and be considered AWOL and a traitor. You know what I mean? So that Absolutely. kind of discourse is needed. It keeps things in balance. I don't think it's any different. It's just more prevalent now because we have social media. But I don't think it's any different than what was experienced relative to those people during the times of the Civil War, the Revolution, uh, every major um, um, historical event that caused some type of division. I, I don't think it's any different than that. Well, that's a, that is a great, great comment on that. That's really great. And I, I, think you, I think this is why you and I see eye to eye more often than we don't on stuff, yeah. even though we, yeah, you and I come from very different places. Yeah. But then again, <laughs> kind of the same, man. That's yeah. why the, a lot of questions I asked you in the beginning on your show was about your uniform and about yeah. your lifestyle when you were in the Sea Org. Because I wanted to know, because you had actually, like in about 2014, I had reached my 20-year mark. I had the option of getting out. I, I chose otherwise and stayed in. But I was going through some PTSD issues, man. I mean, I've seen a lot of shit. I lost a lot of friends. And I, I, I deal with that. And I came across Scientology, man, on their website. And they were saying, I called the number. And they were telling me what I wanted to hear, man. And they were like, oh, man, there's a paramilitary organization like you did something that wouldn't be unfamiliar to you and get your mind right. We could use you, you know, can use your talent. And I, I had my bags packed, man. I was ready to go. And then I said, you know what? I got to dig into this a little bit more. And I stumbled on your site and I was like, Oh, fuck that. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, oh, well, I'm really glad yeah. you did. Yeah. yeah. Cause they I were mean, that video you did on, on, of uh, Scientology is coming apart at the seams. Did it. I was like, Oh no. Oh, hell no. Nope. I mean, it, it, and, and the more I stuck with it and learned, I was like, oh, my God, man, this is just that is the opposite of what, you know, God knows how many people call for wanting some true help, you know, and, and they fall for that. And then they get sucked in. And, and now you think your life was ruined before. Jesus. Yeah, right. And, you know, and this PTSD thing ain't no joke. I mean, you no. you've experienced it. I mean, I've experienced it on my own thing, but. I, you know, my level of it is, is very, very well, different see, from yours. I, I, would, I, would beg, well, I would beg to differ because um, PTSD, as, a, as a, I've learned, it's not about what's wrong with you. It's about what happened to you. You could get PTSD from childbirth or a car accident. It's relative to the individual that experienced it. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, good point. For me to say that what you've been through, what, what causes you to stay up at night is, is irrelevant or shouldn't be considered on par with this. No, man. No, uh, no, no. It's trauma. And, and it's something that altered your life that you live with. And regardless of the severity or the kind, it's still the same thing. The result is the same. You're fucked up. And you, yeah, and you that's, need, that's, you know what I mean? that's where it goes. That's right. How have you dealt with it? And how have you seen your fellows deal with it? Um, uh, unfortunately, I lost some friends of mine to suicide. Uh, there's 22 mm -hmm. veterans a day that commit suicide since the war. Um, and that is a conundrum in itself because this is the first time 
a battle-hardened veteran force of committing suicides at this kind of rate because you didn't have that from uh, on this level from the Vietnam vets in World War II. So they, they're still trying to work on that and figure that out and see what can fix that if there is a way. Um, but those that I, I've seen deal with it, I mean, some of them I've seen go off on drug, drug tangents, alcohol. I mean, I've got two XYs, Chris. I mean, you know, it's because I was being unable to be dealt with. My, I had shit on my mind. You know what I mean? Which yeah. I wasn't training to go to war. I was coming back from war or I was in war. You know what I mean? That cycle of life is no way to live. So that's another reason why I got off active duty. You know, um, things happen, you know, um, but uh, I, I, I have I've seen, like I said, some commit suicide, but then I've seen some that have really excelled, used it to their benefit, you know, got out of it and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to use what I, I learned to appreciate what I have now, you know, and uh, I think that's the best best way to deal with it. You know, yeah, we're, medication we're, is the answer, maybe. I, I, I don't know, you know, but uh, it's all relative to the individual experience, you know. Oh, of course, of course. How um, has the VA or, you know, you hear, I, I, my only experience again with the VA is, is, is reading news stories about how awful it is yeah. and this sort of thing. It, but it, it is. And if I have to blame any political leadership in the past for anything, it would be the uh, welfare of the veterans coming home because that has been such a shit show. I mean, I hear stories of veterans that lost limbs, uh, uh, you know, the unprofessional staff take them to, take them to give them a bath. They forget about him. He ends up drowning in the tub. I hear the executives buying crazy stuff with bonuses and government money. It's a shit show. I know that if I need to get treated, I'm on a waiting list and that shouldn't be, you know, I'm on a waiting list that can last up to two, three weeks long. You know, that's ridiculous. You know, um, they have the bedside man of the IRS and the efficiency of the post office. You know, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, I don't want to laugh at that, but yeah, yeah, but that, it's, yeah. It's a reality, man. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Are there outside resources uh, that you've been able to take advantage of or that you have heard about? There are some, there are some uh, veterans organizations that have uh, um, uh, 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 sprung up over the years that have uh, been like um, points of channeling for veterans to get them in the right direction in, a, in an expedited way. You know, to, to, they have petitioned uh, uh, government officials for legislation to be passed to have civilian doctors be paid for on the government dime or on the VA budget. You know, if they're not going to do it, well, let's see if they can't get some civilian doctors in their local area to do it. You know what I mean? Thank God for that. But, um, you know, just those little things, you, you got to be resourced and, uh, and a veteran has to really, you know, he's got to want to help himself too. He's got to remember those, those fundamental building blocks. Look, I'm going to get out of this sh shit sandwich. I mean, I need to, I, I need to suck it up. I need to take one step at a time, hit that alarm clock in my head that's going off telling me to sit down and not do anything, hit that alarm clock, get on my feet and continue to march. Right. And that is the struggle. That really is the struggle. There is um, a perception and certainly one that I have witnessed firsthand um, the, of, of, of the, you, you know, you just mentioned suck it up. Yeah. Good advice under some circumstances exactly, and horrible yeah. advice under other circumstances. Exactly. Right? Like I said, it's all, it, it's individual dependent. Um, 
yeah. that term, I mean, when I was first joined the army, suck it up was like used every 10 minutes, you know, um, here's some Motrin, drink water, take a knee. I know your, your, your spine is compressed because you're carrying 90 pounds for 15 miles, but suck it up, you know, suck it. And, and now that culture I've seen has changed because those injuries that these veterans are coming home with are injuries that could have been averted if, if their chain of command was properly briefed on, look, you do this dumb shit in training, you're going to hurt a soldier or you're, are you going to, you're telling them to do this. This is, this is not wise, man. This is, this is dumb. You know, there's a fine line between being what we call cool and crazy. It's having that a leadership, uh, your chain of command aware of that difference, you know? Yeah. Saying, I need to push you hard. I need to get everything out of you because training, you know, every, every uh uh drop of sweat in training saves a gallon of blood i get it but then there comes a point to where look man you got to stop you know stop you know it's 105 degrees with 200 percent humidity you're wearing six layers of body armor you got to stop man. you know yeah exactly there are uh of course you hear the stories about you know and everybody exemplifies and practically idolizes special forces green beret you know yeah. the elite units Mm -hmm. But I think they lose sight of just how tough just being in the regular units is. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the standard, the expected standard, like I, I was in an airborne unit, so the standards are pretty high. And that is the bottom tier of, I mean, the next level up would be Rangers, then would be your Green Berets, and then what we have, what you call going to the dark side, the Delta Force guys, the, the unmentionables. You know, that's the level of, I guess, um, Hollywoodness, <laughs> but you escalate <laughs> as you, as you, you know, choose to take in your army career. But, um, you hear a lot of, um, like Navy SEALs, they love the TV, man. <laughs> those guys, uh, they, they, <laughs> there's a movie or a book made every other week about those dudes, man. And it's like, yep. man, you're supposed to, you know, silent professionals, man. Like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, get off the TV, man. <laughs> right. Right. You know? Yeah, they're not so special when everybody knows everything about them. Yeah. So, but I mean, yeah. Um, it being being in a, a, a well, what I can speak to, being in a uh, an airborne unit. Uh, I mean, it, it was physically demanding for me. I mean, I, I'm. I played sports in high school. I'm, I'm by no means some kind of super machine because some of those guys that make it up to those levels of special operations are machines. Like you're wondering when they're going to take the batteries out, you know, because they're just, they can just go and go and, you, and carry a God amount of weight. And it's just, man, you, you know, what you wouldn't think would be humanly possible. But I guess that's why I never went for that kind of thing because I'm not made that way. But I mean, it was hard. It, it was challenging for me. It kept me in shape. It kept me mentally focused. But, um, you know, that's why when you go to those higher levels of, of special operations, each level you go up to, the standard gets a little bit harder because they want to find the better person. Not to say that you're not a good person, but the better person that'll fit that kind of culture, that'll physically handle it. All the way up to, like, let's say Delta Force, for example, where from what I understand, I mean, I've never been through the training, but I had guys that, that went through the selection process and look, they, it's a, it's a solitary, uh, exercise. They're by themselves. They carry God awful amounts of weight on their back. They're given a map and say, look, you got to walk this 30 miles to get to this point, no later by this time and see you there. 
And then halfway there, some dude jumps out of the bushes and says, stop right there. You're going to get exfilled. You're not what we're looking for. Thanks for trying. See you later. You know what I mean? That takes some mental fortitude that some people, a lot of people don't have. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. And I don't mean to denigrate these guys at all when I say this. Oh, no, 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 not at special, all. They, 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 are, they are the epitome of, because they, they do that special type of work to the average soldier, to paratroopers like myself, we idolize those dudes. You'll see them walking around on, on post, you know, with the beards and the, and, the, and, and the metro tactical look with the collar pops, you know, and you're like, whoa, those are, those are the Hollywood guys. Right, <laughs> you know, right. I don't want right. to be asked if they were here because I won't be able to say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But we got to be clear that there is yeah. no, you know, there's no skimming by in the armed forces, you know, you're, no, you're in no, there. No, no, no. Now yeah. you're going to be working. I mean, every job is important. Every, every job is unique. Every job has their standards. And regardless of what you volunteer for, if you don't meet that standard for what you volunteered for, you won't be doing it for long. Because in an all-volunteer force where they offer bonuses and they recruit the, the best and the brightest and the most physically fit, they have a multitude of people to choose from. They don't need you. And they'll tell you that. You need us. You asked that nobody twisted your arm to sign up. You know, they'll, you'll, I got told that all the time when I was in airborne school. Oh, what you heard? No, nobody twisted your arm to be here. You want to quit? You know, they're getting in your head. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But that's, and that's, and that's uh, exactly how they should do it because they do yeah. need the best and the brightest at the top. And that's what we want. Yeah. And, and that's not a selection process that occurs by, you know, asking people how they feel about stuff. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta earn You're it. Right. You're right. So, you know, 100% behind that. And that's, and for that purpose, for that activity, that makes complete sense. You know, I would never take that standard and then apply it to some other zone where it doesn't make yeah, any sense. Exactly. You know, I mean, uh, and, and plus, while you're going through that, let's say you make it and, and, you re, and you get to your unit. Let's say you go through Ranger Indoctrination Program, or they call it RIP, and you get to our Ranger Battalion. I mean, that's the elite of the infantry, of the paratroopers. That's the Rangers, man. The first thing you get briefed on is what is expected of you. Okay, you made it through all that dumb shit. Now, don't forget that you are, A, an American soldier, expected to behave a certain way, that you have guidelines. Don't, re don't forget why you're here, because we'll remind you the minute you don't. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Quite a different culture, and I think civilian populations, certainly myself, can forget you know, in our criticisms and our and our looking at the consequences of actions, we can all we can often forget that we are dealing with, you know, extremely good people who are really dedicating their lives to something that they see as a very positive and good thing to be doing, you know, yeah. and and in many, many, many ways they are right. You know, so I yeah. and I, I just this is why I, you know, always thank people for their service because it's it's something well, to be you. thankful for. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I wish a lot of people felt like you, man. And, and, I can, and I can only imagine what the Vietnam vets have gone through. Like, oh. My dad, man, oh. my dad would tell me stories about having to change out of his uniform uh, in the middle of the night while he was at a Seattle airport because there were protesters that were there ready to throw bags of dog shit on him. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Exactly. Especially when in a culture where you're drafted and it's not your fault. You didn't get... You didn't ask to go, but you're doing your duty. You, you know, you've been asked to go. You, you got drafted, and well, I, I'm going to go do my duty because that's what you were taught. You know, that's right. 
That's exactly right. And there's layer after layer after layer of it, you know, so it's, and deconstructing some of that stuff can be very, very helpful, you know, when it becomes a bit too much. Um, But you definitely have to recognize that there are, there are sectors of our society where you have to push people in certain directions in order to get them to operate at all. And I think we've made that point. And I, I think it's a good point that needs to be made. Do you have, um, any comments, and it's okay with me if you don't, but I'm kind of wondering, do you have any comments about how our current political situation, I mean, we have a person in office who arguably is a difficult person um, and is challenged by the truth, uh, is is challenged in telling the truth about things. Um, I I have many, many issues with such a personality uh, because I've lived under it. And I know yeah. what it is like, and I know what they're capable of, and it and it frankly kind of scares me a bit that you put something somebody like that in charge of the nuclear codes or in charge of, you know, thousands and thousands of people who are yeah. million dollar soldiers. Yeah. What is the view from inside, uh, from your perspective on a couple that situation? First, with Donald Trump being my commander in chief, the fountain of all awards and my paycheck. I am obliged by oath to lawfully follow with fidelity his orders, command, and intentions. But in the same breath, as you were asking, on a, on a, on a soldier level, it's mixed. Um, like, I, I, you know, I know he can be vile. He could be, uh, you know, he could be so uh, bombastic. He could be so boisterous. It's he he reminds me like a Teddy Roosevelt, bully pulpit kind of in your face, rich guy trying to you know. But I watched a video on uh, Eric Snowden not too long ago, and he gave the perfect description of Donald Trump. He's like he's a rich guy that used to get is used to getting what he wants, and and even love. So he'll do whatever it takes from a personal perspective or on a political perspective to get that love. He'll say whatever needs to be said to maintain exactly. it, you know? And that's kind of almost a sad way to live, but in the same breath, he's occupying that office. I've got my fingers crossed that he's gonna make the best decision. So far, he's done a lot for the military. He's built this back up. He's, re- he's re- released the funding, uh, uh, allowed the training, but you, 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 know, you just hope, you sit back and hope like, man, uh, hope, that next decision you make is a good one because it's going right. to take one guy to call your bluff, dude. And then we're in a shit storm. Exactly. And I, and of course that keeps me up at night as well. Um, maybe we can set a lot of people's minds at ease right now. What, you know, there is, there are obviously guidelines and rules that are very, very strict and very, very known Mm-hmm. that the military cannot just be operating with impunity on American soil against American citizens, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and nobody has the idea, well, I should say, hopefully few people have the idea or are truly terrified that Trump might, you know, or, or somebody, anybody actually, because this goes beyond just the questions of our current president. Mm-hmm. In looking at the big picture here, when is the military or when are individuals in the military obligated to question the orders that they are given? And, you know, what are the circumstances? Every time you've given one, you're you're taught to have a, a, what they call a MDMP, uh, military decision-making process. You're giving an order and you are bound to use that thought process to analyze the validity of that order. So 
That's why orders that are given to me are so vague because it's up to me to find out what my piece of the pie is. Is it effective? Is it legal? Will it be an unnecessary waste of resources and uh, personnel? Would it be fraud, uh, give the appearance of fraud, waste, and abuse? That military decision-making process goes into every order I'm given because that's just what we're taught. So, I mean, on, on a cataclysmic scale, I guess you could say if, if, uh, if there was some type of, you know, <laughs> uh, madman, uh, uh, I mean, Trump went really off the deep end and he tried to order the military to do something crazy. I mean, the generals are obliged to say, no, 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 no. Uh, our allegiance first is to the Congress, to the Constitution, then to the Congress. We're lawfully uh, obligated to carry out your orders, but this is stupid. Sorry. Right. Okay. I suspect that there have been many such conversations already. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. as well. Because, um, you know. He did all that is, 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 is Trump's display of his intention of not to want to go and get into a fight. That's the one good thing I can say that he's been pretty solid on. He's avoiding, a, if, if that Iran thing happened with, with Bush, I mean, we would, we would be in Tehran by now. So Yeah, that's a good point. You know what I mean? Yes, so that is a good point. Trump is very adamant about keeping us out of conflict. And if conflict happens, it's going to have something that has a lot of closing distance. We're going to use drones and missiles, you know, something that has that you could just see on a TV. You know, he don't want to have that campaign promise broken, you know, to lose that love by putting boots on the ground. You know, right. Would how would that affect? I, I I've never really thought about it much before. How does that sort of order affect things politically for soldiers? Uh, I mean, it 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 happens when we're given orders to let's say go fight. I mean, we're not the the time to think about the politics is after it's done. Right. Right. You're given a mission, and you got your world to consolidate and get ready to go fight. You got loved ones that are gonna miss you. You got a dog you could have to find a sitter for. You got bill collectors that you gotta call and say, hey, look, I'm gonna be gone. You, those are the things that take priority when the balloon goes up, so to speak. You know, that's, what, that's what takes precedence because it's not like, I mean, I, I know it can be kind of, you know, Hollywood has a different uh, perspective of it. Even in some of the most realistic movies, they try to put this in, this philosophical spin on it and or this political spin on it when in actuality it's not maybe some of them had that consideration but i know that i never that never crossed my mind i'm not thinking about the politics i got a unqualified belief and faith in my chain of command that they know what they're doing so if they give me an order well then it's time for me to execute uh, uh, i'm not right. going to sit down there and dance around it makes total sense Listen, man, I think we're going to head toward wrapping up. This has been right, an bro. amazing conversation. Yeah, man. And I, I completely enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Your perspective oh, you, is is unique and valuable and not something that I could ever um, assume or or presume to to just, you know, get my head my head in your headspace and speak yeah. from your position. I, you know, I, I just can't do that. So I, I, I very much appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, man. And I, and I appreciate you uh, having me on. It was a good talk, man. Finally got to talk to you. Finally got to meet you. And uh, hope there's many more, man. Exactly. Well, this could this definitely doesn't have to be our last one. Um, this is just our first, right? And I love collecting yep. resources for my show yeah, and, and and bringing them back on to you know to talk about specific things. So I'm sure Absolutely. we we. 
I, and do I this again. I, I don't think we're going to be short of incidents to talk about in the near future. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I don't. No, nope, <laughs> I don't think so either, man. So, uh, All right. Well. Gary, thanks a lot, man. Any questions, comments, feedback you guys have out there on this, I would be very happy to hear it. I hope you guys have enjoyed the show and considered the many of the things that we talked about here in a, maybe a different light than the way you've considered it before. Um, this was no effort to change anybody's mind in one direction or another, but it was really just an effort to throw some more information out there for you to use to consider the, the, the pros and cons of some of the decision-making processes that go on behind the scenes for when we see headlines of things and we become outraged, well, maybe there's more to that story that you really don't have any clue about. And maybe this could help give you some. So thanks for listening, folks, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.